If you would, take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're here, we're at the end. Today we finish this book. It's been a marvelous, marvelous study for me. I hope that you as well have found it refreshing and encouraging and challenging. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're right at the end. I get an awful lot of mail here at the church and also at home. Frankly, if you're like me, much of my mail never gets opened before it hits the trash can. You see it, you just look at it and pitch it immediately. There's other mail that makes literally the first cut. I open it up, pull it out, I look at the first line or two, and then much of that ends in the trash as well. Some of the mail I get, I open it up, read the first line or two, and then I skim through the rest of it to get the main points. You know, it's a newsletter from from uh, this organization or that organization, and it's interesting, but I don't really dig in deep. But occasionally, I get something from a group or a person that I, I'm interested in, and I read the whole thing pretty much through. But then occasionally, and very occasionally, this day and time, about once or twice a year, I get a personal letter. Some of you don't know what that is. But a personal letter, a personal note from a family member or friend. Those I carefully read through all the way from the first greeting to the last line. And the more I care about that person who is writing, the more intently I pay attention to all the detail and read through. We've passed through the meat of this letter. We've gone through all the challenging stuff and the good stuff. And we've gotten to the last little bit, the last few lines. And there's a tendency among us when we are reading just, you know, whether it's mail that we're not from somebody we know personally or whether it's a book or whatever, there's a tendency for us, we've, we think we've hit all the good stuff and we just skip over the little stuff at the end. We don't want to do that. Remember that for one thing, the Apostle Paul in this letter is writing to folks that are wonderfully dear to him. This, as we we noted when we began, this little letter, more than any other of Paul's letters, reflects his heart. It's very, very personal, very intimate as he writes these folks. And so, Paul is not going to waste, just like when, when you're writing someone you love and care about, or someone you love and care about is writing you, you know, you don't, nothing is wasted, it's all important. But even more than that, we should care about what this end is because, you see, the Word of God, all of it, is really God's letter to us. It's His love letter to us. While not every passage in Scripture is equally applicable, while not every passage in Scripture is doesn't grab our attention equally, all of it is God's Word and all of it has significance and importance. And so it is here as we come to the end of this book. There's actually much to see here, more than we can begin to cover this morning. 
We could spend time this morning in verse 26 where it says, Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I remember when college friends read this, they thought they had stumbled onto something awesome. (laughs) Here's a Bible command that they couldn't wait to memorize and to put to use to go quote to the girls, you know. Look, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. It's right here in the Bible. It's a command. (laughs) It's better than mistletoe because it works all year long. (laughs) Of course, He's speaking, as he says very clearly, of a holy kiss, not a sensual one. It's more like the kiss from your grandmother, because that's the point. It's, it's family affection. It's a family kiss. In the church, we're to be like a family, and there's to be a familial, a family affection for one another. Caring for one another is required. Kissing is optional. Or we could spend time in verse 27 where he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. We could spend time talking this morning about the importance and the priority of the Scriptures and of reading the Scriptures in worship. To me, one of the ironies and one of the tragedies in our day and time is that most liturgical churches read the Scriptures and read great portions of the Scriptures in their services, but their rituals only give lip service to the Scriptures because the majority of them do not believe the Scriptures to be the inerrant, inspired, authoritative, and sufficient Word of God. And on the other hand, the majority of evangelical churches who would say they believe all of those things Rarely, the majority of them rarely read Scripture in their services. (laughs) I just find both of those things odd and a tragedy. This morning, though, I want to focus our attention on verses 23 and 24. So if you would, follow along as I read these verses. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We could call these words a benediction. Benediction is not a word that most of us use very often. It's really mostly used in church. You might find it in your bulletin at the end of the order of service. Have you ever asked, what is a benediction? It really comes from a Latin word, bene, which means good, diction, which means words. Good words. They are good words of blessing, good words of encouragement, usually at the end of of something as we're ready to part ways. That's why and, and what I do usually when we end our services, I usually try to end with some words of encouragement or charge or challenge or blessing. This blessing, you might notice though, as you read it, it's also a prayer. And as I read it, maybe it sounded a little familiar to you. If you've been with us over the past couple of, couple of months, you might recognize that this prayer that Paul prays here sounds very much like a prayer that he prays earlier. Chapter 3, verse 17, he prayed this, Now may our God and Father Himself 
Establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. As you read that and you compare it here with, with the verses I just read a minute ago verse uh, from chapter 5, you'll see how similar those are. Now this book of First Thessalonians is not that long in most of our Bibles. My Bible is three pages. Most of ours is just a few pages at best. In a book that that's this, that short, why does the Apostle Paul pray almost the same prayer twice? See, it ought to get your attention. It ought to cause you to ask why. Well, think about it. And in a little bit, I'll give, I'll suggest an answer. Notice what the prayer is. He says, now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. This is a prayer for sanctification. Now again, sanctification is not a word that we use very much. May the God of peace sanctify you. Um, what does the word sanctification mean? This would be a question we should ask. Well, it's... It's a word that can be used interchangeably with the word holy and holiness. As a matter of fact, in our Bibles, those two words, English words, or there are two groups of words, holy and holiness and sanctify and sanctification and saint, they all come translated from the same Greek word or root word. But what do the words mean? Well, it means literally this, to be set apart. As believers, specifically, it means to be set apart from sin and to be set apart to righteousness, to be set apart to God, to belong to God. It's being set apart to Him, to be His. That's what sanctification is. Notice how, how Paul says, to the extent to which he wants you and I to be sanctified. He doesn't want you to be somewhat sanctified or a little bit sanctified or a whole lot sanctified. He says, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. That means literally, it means to the end, to the finish, to the completion. And he goes on to say, to say your whole spirit and your whole soul and your whole body, in other words, holy, Completely, entirely, through and through, all the way to the core. Both the material parts and the immaterial parts. The parts you can see and the parts you can't see. Not just a veneer coating. You know, it's not just that we're dipped in holiness. <laughs> so we're all covered by holiness, but inside we're, we're something else. So he says, I want you to be, I will, I'm, he's praying that God will sanctify, make us holy all the way to the completion, and all the way through. And because if, if you go to Scripture and you begin looking at these words, sanctify and sanctification, and you look at holy and holiness, you might see that they're used in some different ways, and it can get confusing. So I think before we move on, I need to talk just a little bit and give a little information about what we might call some 
stages, or perhaps a better word might be some tenses of sanctification. You remember when you took English or you took some other language in school and you talked about verbs and you learned that verbs have tenses. There's past tense and there's future tense, present tense, and all kinds of other weird ones that we won't go into. We'll just stick with those three. Because when we talk about sanctification, what we find in the Bible is it uses that word in all three tenses. There is a past tense to our sanctification. Theologians call this our positional sanctification. In other words, back when you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God at that moment declared you justified. He declared you forgiven. Our sin was erased. And God says you are now righteous. You are holy. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 says we have been sanctified through the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You have been. We have been sanctified. Not we will be. We have been. Through the, the death of Christ. He taught, writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but you were, again in the past tense, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ paid the debt for our sin when we trust Him by faith, when we put our, our, our faith and trust, when we believe in Him, the Bible says we are justified, we are washed, we are sanctified. And so, along with that, we get a new identity. Jesus paid the debt, the issue is settled, and we have a new identity, and that is saint. It is absolutely fitting for us to call one another Saint Rick, you know, Saint Will, because the Bible says we are indeed saints. The Apostle again writes to the Corinthians, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, similar greetings to basically most every church in the New Testament. To the saints in Colossae. To the saints in Philippi. Living people are already saints because our sanctification has a past tense to it. It's a past event. But all we have to do is look around. You know, look at the person next to you or down the pew a little bit. If that doesn't do it, go home and look in the mirror and what you'll realize is very quickly our sanctification is missing something. I know you all well enough to know that none of you are perfect. The saints in Corinth, Paul addressed these folks as saints and you read the book to the Corinthians, Paul's first letter, and you go, whoa! These folks have got some major problems. See, our sanctification isn't complete. Our sanctification is real, but our sanctification has not been realized. 
there's a future tense to our sanctification. Theologians sometimes call that the future aspect of our sanctification, our ultimate sanctification, our final sanctification, our perfect sanctification. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We're not yet what we will be. He goes on, but we know that when He, Jesus, appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. See, the Scripture is clear. There is a day coming when Jesus Christ returns. We will, as the Scripture says, be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed. We have a destiny, a destiny to be fully sanctified, to be made perfect inside and out, to have our inner person renewed, our outer person made perfect, our bodies, all of us perfected inside, outside, materially and immaterially. It's going to happen when Jesus returns. We free from sin. Our attitudes changed. We'll be pure in heart. Much more we could say, but our sanctification is both in the past as something that has been done, and yet it's still something that is yet future, that is coming. But then we discover that the Bible speaks of our sanctification in another tense. Not only past and not only future, but it speaks of it in the present tense. And again, theologians sometimes call this progressive sanctification or experiential sanctification, sanctification that we experience or or, um, practical sanctification. We live in the middle between the past where God declared us righteous on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice for us and our faith in Him and the time when we will be sanctified fully and completely when Jesus returns. And in the middle here, we live. And in this period of time, what the Scripture says is that we have a new aim. We have a new aspiration in our living. And that is we are to live out the reality of our past sanctification. And we are to live out the reality of our future sanctification. And they are to show up in the dailies of how we live here in the middle, in the present tense. You might recall that as the Apostle Paul wrote here to these believers, he wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner that is worthy of God, who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. On the basis of your salvation and what God has called you to, what's coming, live it out in the present, he says. 
Peter tells us very clearly what a worthy walk, a worthy lifestyle, a worthy living is in his little letter. First Peter chapter 2, he says, As he who called you is holy, so you are to be holy in your, all your conduct. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's God speaking. Because we have been sanctified, and because we will be sanctified, we are to be growing now in sanctification. We're to be living holy lives. Holiness, sanctification, is more than not doing wrong. It's even more than doing right. It Sanctification is both of those. It does involve not doing wrong, and it is about doing right, but it's more than that. I love the way that Thomas Watson, an old Puritan preacher, said it. He he wrote this. He said, It, sanctification, is a principle of grace, savingly wrought, whereby the heart becomes holy and is made after God's own heart. A sanctified person bears not only God's name, but His image. As deep as you think about it. See, sanctification and holiness is less about what we do and more about who we become. That we begin to look like Jesus. That we begin to reflect His character, godly character, godly... We, we bear, as, as, I, as Thomas Watson says, God's image more perfectly. That's sanctification. In summary, out of all what we've learned here about sanctification, I want to get to the punchline here in a minute. In summary, we have been sanctified positionally, made right before God, declared justified, forgiven, righteous. We've been that in the past. In the meantime, we are to grow in sanctification, to be more sanctified in our behavior. And then one day, we will be sanctified perfectly and completely when Jesus returns. So our aim now, as Paul is saying, is to live in total, complete holiness. Sanctification. That's where we are, that should be our aim, and that's exactly what Paul in this prayer is praying for. We go back now to verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's what he prays for. Would you notice one more thing I want to notice about our sanctification, and that is the source of it. Because would you notice with me that Paul is He says, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you. He doesn't just say, Thessalonian brothers and sisters, go sanctify yourself. Go be holy. Do you notice that? He says, may God sanctify you. It's God's work. Interesting. It's God's work. Something He does. But if you've been around for the rest of this study, as we've gone through Thessalonians, this might just cause you to sit there for a second and start to scratch your proverbial head. 
Do you think, wait a minute. I was here when we started in on chapter 4. Let's just look back. you got your Bibles there. Just flip back a page or wherever it is to get to chapter 4. And follow along as I read these couple of verses here from chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God or ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. God desires that you be sanctified. And folks, we've talked to you about how you are to live. We've told you how to live and how you are to please God, and you guys got to do it more and more. Keep doing it. What you've been doing is good, but do more. And then, when Paul finishes this, God wants you to be sanctified, he goes into instructions about what sanctification looks like. And from there, all the rest of the way through chapter 4, and all into chapter 5, up into this prayer we got to in verse 23 of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul has been giving instructions for what sanctification looks like. What it is, what we look like if we live holy. In other words, he tells us what to go do and who to go be if we're going to live holy. And see where that raises the question is because he just said it's God's work to make us holy. Yet everything he's been saying is go do it. Go be it. Go live it. Does that make you scratch your head? So which is it? Is being holy, is being sanctified something I do, or is it something God does? The answer is obvious. It's both. It's both or He wouldn't have said both. He wouldn't be asking God to sanctify us if God doesn't do that. He wouldn't be telling us to live holy if we weren't supposed to be making the effort and doing the work. It's both and. The reality is that we can't make ourselves holy. Can't do it. But God does it with our cooperation. When we, in our frailty, in our weakness, in our sinful, the sinful nature we have, we just try, okay, you know, I want to obey, I want to do this. What he's saying is God steps in. Paul writes to the Philippians, he says something very similar. He says, work out or live out your own salvation. By the way, just an aside, we can take that word salvation. We talked about the different tenses of sanctification. We can insert salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We can say the same thing about that as we do sanctification. Paul says, work out your own salvation. In other words, live it out with fear and trembling, but notice what he says next. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In other words, it's God who helps put the will in you and the ability in you to live out your salvation. It's a cooperative thing. God does it in us, but He does it in us as we are willing to do it. Now, over the past seven weeks, this is where it really gets good, okay? Over the past seven weeks, as we've gone through chapters four and chapters five, 
we studied these commands after every message. Even the ones I didn't preach when I was gone and Pastor Aaron preached. I would hear from some of you. I'd hear things like, Whoa! Pastor! I need a lot of work. Oh, I've got a lot to think about here. Well, Pastor, that's, that's a terribly convicting message. Let me tell you about it. See, you guys get it for an hour here, half hour here, 40 minutes, whatever it is. You wish you were a half hour. <laughs> 40 minutes or so. I get it all week long as I'm digging through this. I'm just going, oh my goodness. And I read these things and I say, these are wonderful things to aspire to. These are awesome qualities that should be a part of my life. I want to live holy. I want to be holy. I try to live holy, but I fail so often. I often find myself discouraged, feeling inadequate, feeling unworthy, wondering, is God going to give up on me? You ever feel like that? Or has God given up on me? Did he just say, you know, did he just say today, that's it, you know, that's 27 times, you know, you are done. I am so grateful for Paul's words in Romans chapter 7. Because when I read those, I realize he's saying what I say so often. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And down a few verses later, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. And when we read all these commands in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we see what being sanctified and being holy looks like, and then I look at the fact that I can't do it. I keep failing. See, do you ever get discouraged? I know you do. As believers, it's inevitable we're going to have times that we get discouraged, that we feel like the Apostle Paul. I'm so thankful for those words, because when I read those, I realize, oh, I'm not the only one who ever feels that way. There's just those times that I seem like for every step forward, you know, there's those two or three steps backwards. I can't believe I'm here again. But as I was studying this week, I realized it dawned on me, this is why this prayer is here. Paul deliberately, I think, puts this prayer here right after all of those where he lays out, here's what being holy looks like. And we urge you to live out your salvation. Because that's God's will for you. Here's all the commands. But he begins it at the end of chapter 3. Right before he does that, he begins with the prayer that God will establish you in holiness. Sanctification. And he comes over here and he puts another book in after the end of all those commands with a prayer for your sanctification. Why? It's there to bring encouragement to you and me. Because it's not up to us on our own to make this happen. It's not just grit your teeth and pull up your belt and, okay, I'm going to be holy. 
four great encouragements here in this passage. Let's look at them. We've got to go back. I'm going to be real quick. Four great encouragements. Look back here, verse 23. He says, Now may the God of peace Himself, now may the God of peace Himself, that little phrase, again, Paul doesn't waste anything. There's significance to that. Think back about peace. Why is He the God of peace? Because He is the God who has made peace with us. We were enemies of God, the Bible says. But God in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, reconciled us to Himself. He made peace with us. He brought us into a good relationship, a right relationship with Him. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. God moved from being our enemy to being our ally. He's our friend. And he starts off here this prayer for sanctification. It's not that God is up there, you know, looking at you going, you moron! I can't believe it! You know, he's getting to stomp us out. He's our ally. He comes alongside. Isn't that awesome? He's working on our side to make us holy, to sanctify us. And that's the second thing. He's working in us. Notice, did you notice this? May the God of peace Himself sanctify you. Oh, that's a significant word. The God of peace Himself, God Himself is personally involved in your sanctification, in making you holy. He doesn't outsource it or contract it out to China or, you know, some foreign agency. He doesn't enlist some assistant and say, here, you take them. They're just a you know, they're a bad case. God Himself has you as His project. Isn't that awesome? See, aren't you glad we didn't skip the last part of this stuff? Notice a third thing. He goes on in that next phrase. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is going to keep you. That's the one who's going to keep you there. God is going to keep you blameless. Again, when there's those times where you just figure God has got to be so sick and tired of me, I know He's ready to just wipe His hands clean of me and to say, you're on your own. Everybody else gives up on you. Sooner or later, God never will. Keep you blameless. In other words, He's going to hold on that sanctification. You have been sanctified. God is keeping you sanctified from that point in the past to the point in the future when Jesus Christ comes back and you will be perfectly sanctified. He's going to keep you all the way from there to here. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in Him, He's going to keep you. Isn't that cool? One more thing. He says, next verse, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God has called us. He began the work in us. God is faithful. God's character, His nature is faithfulness. He will always do what He says He will do. He always keeps His commitment. 
And so it says he will surely, he will certainly do it. It's guaranteed. Paul writes to the Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, are we to live holy lives? Yeah. Does God expect us to expend ourselves and to engage ourselves and be deliberate in trying to live holy lives? Yes. But to understand that we can't do it. But He's with us every step of the way. He's a faithful God who will bring us from salvation in the past to salvation in the future, sanctification in the past to sanctification in the future. He didn't save us because we were good enough. He saved us by His grace. He doesn't keep us because we're good enough. He keeps us by His grace. It's all along the gracious work of God in our life. We don't deserve what's coming. But oh, what a glorious promise it is. There's glory coming. If you're here this morning and you've never been sure, am I going to heaven or not? Once you understand the message here is very clear, you can't get to heaven by being good. Never could, never will, no one can. We can't be good enough. Our only hope is exactly why we celebrate Christmas, because the angels came with the news, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. We need saving when we are helpless. We were helpless. Jesus came to die for our sin, to pay the penalty. All we can do is trust Him. I encourage you, if you have not before, this is the time to just go to God and say, I realize I need a Savior. And I realize Jesus came for me. I trust Him. The Bible says whoever comes to Him, He will never turn away. And whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And who He saves, He will finish the work because He's faithful. Let's pray. Father, what awesome stuff. Thank You for this word of encouragement. Some of us needed to hear that because we get so discouraged. Because we look and sometimes we don't see progress. But You say and You promise there will be progress. That You will keep growing us to conforming us, the Scripture says, from glory to glory little by little, day to day, until that day when our sanctification, our holiness, our salvation is absolutely complete when we see Jesus face to face. Until that time, Lord, may You continue in Your grace to reshape and remake us. We might be better reflections of Your holiness and of Your beauty to a world who needs to know Jesus. So, Lord, we ask these things in the name of Jesus and for His glory. Amen.